Well, we're going to look at a letter to a church this morning that we can entitle a letter to a loveless church, and that is found in Revelation chapter 2. So open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, and we will continue our study. We introduced the letters last time we were together studying Revelation. We introduced the letters, and I gave some background, and and then we just barely started into Revelation 2, verses 1 to 7 in this letter to the church at Ephesus. I'm going to do my best to get through the whole letter this morning, and I'll just say this. There's a lot of material that I'm showing on the slides. I don't want it to feel like you're trying to drink out of a fire hydrant. Uh, And so just another reminder that these slides are made available online so usually it's about a week after the sermon. As, as soon as it's posted, I try to get the slides posted as well. So uh, if I kind of run through it quickly and skip over some material, uh, you can go back and, and get it. It's, th- this letter is so densely packed uh, with all kinds of wonderful stuff, as well as a lot of convicting stuff that it's just hard to know what to leave out. And so that's one of the the big challenges always is what do I leave out? And I'll try my best to to finish this letter this this morning and you can uh, look to the the slides for some of the stuff that we pass over. Well, let's look at the letter itself, Revelation chapter 2 verses 1 to 7. Here Christ dictates this letter to his slave John, and John records the following, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men And put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and have found them to be false. And you have perseverance, and have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore remember from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds you did at first, Or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, you hate the Nicolaitans, I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. As we noted last time, this letter and all the other letters will contain the same essential elements with a few minor alterations, but we can trace the structure of all the letters, even in this letter. We see the address that is given at the start of the letter. The assessor describes himself, and it is Christ, and he describes himself using details of the vision that he gave John, There on the island of Patmos, recorded in chapter 1, there is an approval that is given, at least to most of these churches, and including this church to Ephesus. There's an accusation that is made to most of these churches, though not all. 
There is to this church a very memorable accusation made, which we'll look at this morning. Fifthly, there is an admonition. Sixth, an appeal. And seventh, an assurance. So we're going to go look through the last five of those because we've looked at the address and the assessor already. So we're going to look this morning at the approval, the accusation, the admonition, the appeal, and the assurance. And before we do that, it is helpful to remember that this church in Ephesus was a church with a very rich legacy, a very enviable legacy, if we can call it that. One writer says this, Nowhere does the word of the gospel seem to have found a kindlier soil to have struck root more deeply or to have borne fairer fruits of faith and love from, from a church to which so much was given much would be the Ephesian church was a church that benefited from the Apostle Paul in more ways than any other church had benefited from him. And in fact, the Apostle John, according to church tradition, spent three decades of his life centered in this church. It is a church with a very rich legacy. And we're going to look at that even in Christ's approval of this church now in verses 2 and 3, and then as well in verse 6, Christ's approval of this church, he states this, he says, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and that you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false, and you have perseverance and have endured and have not grown weary, yet This you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. That last sentence found in verse 6. Christ begins this approval with the words, I know, as the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, who walks among the, the, the churches and who holds the seven stars, the messengers in his hands. He is the one who is sovereign and intimately acquainted with the state of each church. And so it's only appropriate that he begins by saying, I know. And this term, I know, indicates complete knowledge. It's not knowledge that is in process. It's knowledge that is already possessed. And what he is going to state as his knowledge of this church in approving can be found in six virtues. Six virtues in these verses that are stated in pairs in verses 2 and 3, and then he's going to elaborate for the sake of emphasis on one of those virtues again in verse 6. So let's look at these three pairs of virtues that Christ approves in the Ephesian church. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. The first approval is this, your deeds. Now the term itself is neutral. It refers to activity of any kind. In fact, it's going to be used a little bit later in a negative sense to speak of the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which were not good. So you have to look at the context to define what these deeds are. And Jesus does this by the two terms that follow. And in the original language, it's more clear that the terms toil and perseverance are stated in order to define what Jesus is referring to when he refers to the deeds or the works of the Ephesian believers. 
toil. And this term refers to work that is done unto the point of weariness. It, it speaks of sacrificial labor, labor that does not come neutrally or easily, but it enacts a toll on the person doing that labor. And in fact, it's interesting to note that in the New Testament, this term Toil is commonly used, particularly by the Apostle Paul, to describe gospel ministry. Paul does not conceive of gospel ministry as easy or simple. And so just as a general way of of describing it, he uses the word toil to refer to the sacrificial efforts that are required to engage in the Great Commission. But these deeds are not only a kind of work that is labor unto weariness, but he also defines it as perseverance. And that idea of perseverance, that term, you stand up under pressure. So this term, deeds, really has an active and a passive sense. The active sense is that labor unto weariness. The passive sense is the ability that as that toil is being done, that those who are doing it are able to stand up against the resistance that comes, the pain that comes, the hostility. And it indicates to us that this Ephesian church had faced considerable pressure. They had faced opposition and hostility from their fellow countrymen, and it was not easy at this time in any way to to profess the name of Christ in that city. We already know that from, from 30, 40 years earlier when the Apostle Paul was there, and as the gospel made an impact, you had the whole riot break out, and Paul's life was under threat, and he has to leave the city. It was not easy, and, and that difficulty only increased with time so that by around eighty ninety six, as believers were there in the city of Ephesus under the reign of Emperor Domitian, that life and, and, and ministry, church life and ministry, had become difficult. Pressures, opposition, threats. And yet, in the midst of all that, the Ephesians were standing strong. That's the first virtue that Jesus commands. Secondly, the second half of that first pair is this, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. Now, in the positive sense, that word tolerate has the idea of or sustain a burden. And so it's used, for example, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, where it speaks of sharing one another's burdens. Those who are spiritual are to share the burden of those who are weaker. And that's used in a good sense. But Jesus is negating that verb here and saying, you cannot bear, you cannot tolerate. The idea here is, is intolerance. Is, is what Jesus is commanding. Shocking, because in our day, intolerance for the culture is, a, is one of the deadly vices. There can be no intolerance in our culture, according to the cultural norms. And in those days as well, there, there could be no intolerance of the, the pagan cultural rituals, the worship at the temple of Artemis, worship at the, the imperial cult, the, the temple of Domitian that was there in Ephesus. But Jesus commends them. They had a certain kind of intolerance, and he defines it as an intolerance toward evil men. Now that term evil that refers to those who are morally corrupt. They're lawless. And of course, within of that day, just as much as they, 
that religion and immorality get wrapped up together. And that's what you had taking place both within the confines of, of, of temple sanctuaries as well as all around it. It was part of, of doing homage to the different gods as well as to the emperor. It was all wrapped up with immorality. And Jesus says to this church, you cannot tolerate these evil men. Somehow there was an influence, as we will learn about more, of those who sought to bring paganism and immorality in one way or another into the church. And Jesus commends these Ephesian believers that they stood firm. They did not tolerate. They, they did not accept, but instead rejected the pagan immorality of the day. There is a second pair of virtues here, virtues 3 and 4, that are described in the second half of verse 2. Look back there again, and you say, see this. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. So the third virtue, the first pair of this, the second pair is this, you put to the test. This emphasizes a doctrinal concern. And Jesus commends them because the Ephesians are engaging in this effort to discover the character of, of the doctrine being taught. You put to the test, and in particular, Jesus commends them that they were testing the teaching of apostles. Now, these aren't the apostles that Jesus himself sent, but these were self-made apostles. Those who claimed a kind of special authority to go from city to city and infiltrate the churches and teach in the churches and influence believers. And we know already from Paul's time, years earlier, decades earlier, that even in his day, he was dealing with these false apostles. You can look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10, all the way to 13, and you can see Paul's, Paul's teaching about the false apostles influencing the church in Corinth. In fact, even here in Ephesus, when Paul said farewell to the elders, and we have that record in, in Acts chapter 20 from Luke's pen of Paul's farewell address, he refers in Acts 20, verses 29 to 30, those who would seek to disrupt the church. Paul said to the Ephesian elders, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. That was already Paul's prophecy, and what we see is that the Ephesian elders did a good job because 30 years later, 40 years later, as Christ commends this church, he commends them specifically for testing these apostles. And much of the Apostle John's ministry later on dealt with dealing with the growing number of false apostles, false teachers relating through the churches established by the apostles seeking to corrupt the doctrine. You could look at 
1 John 4, 1 through 6, or 2 John 7 through 11 to find the tests that John himself gave to the churches in the province of Asia to test those teachers who are coming through. Jesus commends this church and says, you don't naively accept the teaching of anyone who comes to you. Instead, you examine, and that is commendable. Moreover, the second half of this pair of virtues is then found at the end of verse 2, where Jesus then adds, and you found them false. Not only were you engaged in holding the teaching up to the apostolic standard, and you were able to arrive at the right conclusion. There are many who say they engage in discernment, but not everybody arrives at the right conclusions. But these Ephesians did. The end result of their testing was always leading them to the right conclusions. They knew that they needed to test And they had the right standard and the right skill in order to come to the right conclusion. And Jesus commends them for that act. There's a third pair of virtues that are listed. These ones now, this pair, these virtues are found in verse 3. Jesus goes on and says this, And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Notice verse 3. Now, the first of this pair is is this, you have perseverance. What's interesting here is that Jesus goes back to the very first virtue, the, the term, one of the terms that described deeds, and now he brings that into its own virtue and builds off of it here in verse 3. He says specifically, you have perseverance. You have the ability to stand up under pressure. Again, testifying to the very difficult context in which the Ephesian believers lived and served. You have perseverance. In particular, he he says this, you have endured for my name's sake. This perseverance, this ability to stand up under pressure, specifically related to their confession. Now remember, I talked a little about the kind of that took place uh, of the emperor in that day. There in Ephesus... There was a massive structure built to the honor of the reigning emperor, Emperor Domitian, with a six-meter-tall statue of Domitian there, and it would be expected of residents of the city that you would profess that Caesar, Domitian, is Lord, is Savior, is Creator, And yet these believers in Ephesus refused to do that. I said last time that if you were Jewish, you were allowed the exception. You were allowed to to, to, uh, resist that and not make the confession. And you would pay a certain tax and that would get you out of the obligation. But if you weren't Jewish, no matter what stripe, no matter what background you came from, you were expected at every civic gathering, to make the profession, to confess Caesar as Lord. And yet this church was enduring, in particular, for the Jesus. Their confession consistently was Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And then he says this as the second half of this pair of virtues He says, you have not grown 
weary. Now, there's a bit of a paradox here. Because back in verse 2, the word deeds, if you look back at verse 2, I know your deeds. And the word deeds are defined by toil and perseverance. Now, Jesus has already taken that word perseverance and and, and, and made its own virtue here in the first half of verse 3. But now we come back to that word toil. Remember, I said it was labor unto wearisomeness. It was toil, was labor that required pain. It was not done without a price. And yet, paradoxically, Jesus says, you have not grown weary. There is a play on words here. The idea is, as Jesus commends them, that you have labored wearifully, but without weariness setting in. That's to show the level of acumen and ability that these believers possessed. They could toil without toiling, in a sense. They could go through all the sacrificing, but they wouldn't consider it a sacrifice. They were able to labor wearifully, but without weariness setting in. Because as we all know, when the weariness sets in, we are prone to self-pity and complaining and all the other vices that come after But not these believers. They were solid. They could sacrifice without even acknowledging the sacrifice. One commentator summarizes especially these last virtues this way. He says, there are things, this is, he's paraphrasing how Jesus commends this church. And it's as if Jesus says this, there are things which thou canst not bear, and things which thou canst bear. Thou canst not bear the wicked, such false brethren as name, the name of Christ only to bring shame upon it, but thou canst bear my reproach, my cross. Now Jesus, a little later in this letter, is going to come back to the commendation to his approval of this church in verse 6, which tells us, that after he moves on in verses 4 and 5 to deal with some more pressing matters with this church, he does return near the end of this letter to again, and it's emphatic. It shouldn't be taken as a brand new virtue, but instead, Jesus is coming back to one of the things that was particularly important in this day. Notice verse 6. He says, yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So notice in verse 2, Jesus had commended them for the fact that they did not tolerate evil men. Now, I, I didn't describe there who those evil men were. I just mentioned that they were morally corrupt. But here in verse 6, Jesus applies to that category an actual title, a group. This, this was a formal group of people called the Nicolaitans. And, and when we first look at it, notice the language that Jesus uses to refer to this group. It again expresses intolerance, but even more emphatically. Jesus commends them and says, you hate the deeds of these Nicolaitans, these evil men, which I also hate. Now, it's interesting in in our day, uh, due to all the the pressures of only love, that to see Hatred of sin, or to speak of 
hatred of sin and hatred of evil deeds is something we feel very uncomfortable talking about. And yet Christ uses this very language to communicate the fact that Christ hates evil deeds. That's contrary to that which breaks his revealed laws. Those things he detests. He despises with a righteous wrath. And the the Ephesian believers did so as well. Now there's a question here as as to who these Nicolaitans are. And and when we get a little bit further into the letter of Pergamum, uh, we'll we'll take more time to define these Nicolaitans. Jesus simply references them and their deeds here. So I'm going to leave a full-fledged definition of the Nicolaitans until later. But just a few notes about these Nicolaitans. The, the term Nicolaitan, the title, is made up of two words. It's just interesting to note that it really means conqueror of the people. Conqueror, even in this letter, in all these letters, the term victory or conqueror or overcomer is all very important language. And these Nicolaitans are known as conquerors or overcomers or victors over the people. That's literally what that name means. And it corresponds very directly to the Hebrew name, which means devourer of the people. Devourer of the people. Now look for just a moment ahead to the letter to the church in Pergamum. If you look at verses 14 to 15, you'll find the name Balaam and the name or the title Nicolaitans used in the same breath. Jesus says to the church at Pergamum, but I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put stumbling blocks before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols, so idolatry, participate in religious idolatrous festivals, and to commit those two things in the ancient pagan world were very closely intertwined. And then verse 15, so you also have some in the same way who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So there in the letter to the Pergamums, you, you, you see the connection between Balaam and the Nicolaitans that sought to syncretize idolatry and immorality with the teaching of the church. And for now, that's how we're going to define the Nicolaitans. We'll say more about them later. We could essentially summarize it this way. The Nicolaitans were those who were compromisers, not just passive quiet compromisers, but compromisers in an active way, serving as yeast that was infiltrating the entire lump and seeking to to cause downfall. They were compromisers with pagan practices. They were those, and we can probably imagine, we, we have to be careful about speculation, but we could probably imagine that in that very tense context, as believers were starting to pay the price for confessing Jesus as Lord and not Caesar as Lord, in that context where believers were were not going to celebrate 
Artemis and not going to celebrate Domitian. They're paying the penalty for that and starting to, to feel pain in very tangible ways. And then you had this group of people who said, look, we need to be peacemakers. We can't fight the culture, so let's try to find a compromise. Let's try to blend it in to create a kind of Christianity here in Ephesus in which our people won't suffer. We don't need all the things, rituals. We don't need to go all the way, but we'll find this middle ground, this golden area where we can have a foot in both worlds and please our God and please the people as well. That probably was along the lines of what the Nicolaitans were actively teaching in the church. And Jesus, I commend you, Ephesians, because you hate these deeds. And when you look at the resume of the Ephesian church, it is impressive. They had spiritual, a significant spiritual ministry, a lot of activity. Verse 2. They were intolerant of moral compromise. Verse 2. They, they tested the doctrinal purity of teachers. Verse 2. They, they were categorical in their rejection of doctrinal error. Verse 2. They were persistent despite opposition. Verse 3. And they, fru- they refused to give up. Verse 3. They, they checked oxes. At least we think they do, or they thought they did. And yet that was not according to Christ. Now we move to the accusation in verse 4. Notice this, some of the most penetrating, convicting words. I, I can only imagine that as that messenger would read this letter to that congregation in Ephesus, the retelling of all these good things, they're smiling. They're thinking, this is a well-done, good, and faithful servant kind of speech. And then they get to the first word of verse 4. But. But I have this against you. You have left your first love. Now, there is not a lot of words here in in this particular statement. It's very short. It's very to the point. Nothing else is added. Just, just a very simple statement, but it is enough to devastate any listener, any hearer, any recipient of these words. I have this against you, Jesus says, that you have left your first love. The, the, the con- conjunction that is used here is, is very strong, indicating a very sharp change of tone. And that term, first love, we, we all recognize what this means. It's, it was used to refer to that fervent kind of love that characterizes newlyweds. And, and this phrase has a lot of disagreement on that because it's not newlyweds here. He's referring to or using this term in a spiritual sense. And so scholars advocate various options here. And you can read pages and pages and pages of this in commentaries. Let me just summarize it quickly. One option here is that what the, the, the accusation was, was that the Ephesian church and all of their good works and their spiritual resume had, had lost their love of their fellow brother and sister in Christ. 
due to a spirit of cold orthodoxy and an excessive censorship and this perpetual suspicion. It diminished the brotherly love. They were taking testing to such an extent that their, their approach was they would not believe the best. They were always thinking that their brother or their sister was secretly espousing some kind of heresy and they had to smoke it out. Possibly, there's a lot of good reasons to, to believe that. Another option is that this represents a, 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 a leaving of a love for the lost. That an overemphasis on separation from the world and an overemphasis on ex- excommunicating sinners, that all of that had contributed to this, uh, this extinguishing of evangelistic zeal. And some scholars say that because Jesus talks about removing the lampstand, removing the light, that what he's referring to is this, that if you will not do your job as a witness in the community, I myself will remove you from that community. And a lot of good arguments raised there as well. But the third option here, and the option that I will advocate here, is that this refers to a love for Christ. An overconfident orthodoxy and an imbalanced emphasis on works had eclipsed devotion for God. That all the striving for the good things had taken their focus away from the best. And that is one of the great dangers even of the Christian life. We can be very comfortable and content with good things. Things that are way better than what we see in other churches. Things that are way better than what we see certainly in the world. Things that we can attain, things that we can accomplish. And they're good things. Jesus even commends those things. And yet the good can always threaten the best. And we see that in Scripture. We see that happen, and the Lord draw attention to it in the Old Testament. For example, in Jeremiah 2, verses 2 to 5, Jesus, or the Lord chastises the inhabitants of Jerusalem with these words, Go and proclaim in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, I remember... Concerning you, the devotion of your youth, the love of your betrothals, your following after me in the wilderness through a land not sown, of his harvest. Thus says the Lord, what injustice did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and walked after emptiness and became empty? There's an interesting Allusion to this even in John's own gospel. Remember, John is the one who's penning this. This statement in verse 4 wouldn't have taken him back to something that he wrote about at the end of his gospel of John in, in John chapter 21. In a very interesting situation, an account where Jesus restores the apostle Peter. But as Jesus restores the apostle Peter, he focuses Peter not on the past, but on what is most important. Let me read those verses. John 21, verses 15 to 17. 
So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he, Jesus, said to Peter, shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved. He said to him a third time, do you love me? Grief probably was a reflection of that recognition in the moment that Peter had denied Christ three times. And now this third question brought him all the way back there. And Peter was grieved and said to him a third time, you know all things, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. What Jesus makes clear to Peter is that the future ministry that Peter was to have as apostle of tending Jesus' lambs, of feeding his sheep, was not to be done as an end in itself, but as a consequence of something far more important. And that was love for the Savior. And it seems from that reference and other texts that we could turn to, that the problem of the Ephesian church was that it was tending sheep, it was feeding lambs, it was busy, and it was doing all of these things with excellence. And yet there had come a time when these things no longer flowed from that original affection. They had become like a tradition, a ritual, one which is done well, but the ultimate motivation had become obscured. There's an interesting page in a history book, actually written in the early 1700s. It's written by a Scottish theologian and historian by the name of Gilbert Burnett. It's called The History of His Times. And in that, there's a page that describes what Burnett had observed in Reformed churches in, in Germany and Switzerland and the Netherlands in the 1680s. We're talking about just kind of after the, the height of the Puritan era. And this writer describes something similar to here in Ephesus. He writes this, 1680s. I was indeed amazed at the labors and learning of the ministers among the Reformed. They understood the Scriptures well in the original tongues, Greek and Hebrew. They had all the points of controversy very ready and did thoroughly understand the whole of divinity, all the doctrines in systematic theology. In many places, they preached every day and were almost constantly employed in visiting their flock. But they performed their devotions but slightly and read their prayers, which were too long, 
with great precipitation and little zeal. Their sermons were too long and too dry. And they were so strict, even to jealousy in the smallest points in which they put orthodoxy, that one who could not go into all their notions, but was resolved not to quarrel with them, could not converse much with them with any freedom. He then goes on to say, On all the observation that I have made, often considered the inward state of the Reformation, the decay of the vitals of Christianity in it, as that which gives more melancholy impressions than all the outward dangers that surround it. And that speaks well to the problem of the Ephesian church. They thought they had everything set up where it needed to be, and they thought that all of their accomplishments would protect them from the evil men. And yet, as this historian says, that that kind of confidence confidence in your own convictions, that kind of confidence in your own activities, your own ministry, can very quickly lead to these melancholy impressions that are actually more dangerous than the evil men on the outside. In fact, we're going to see that as... As Jesus will get to his appeal, but let's look at what Jesus the admonition in verse 5. In light of that danger, that threat, Jesus gives an admonishment. Verse 5, therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you. And will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Notice here that it's not the evil men who will be the ones to remove the lampstand. It is Christ himself. But in order to avoid that, he gives three commands. In light of this waning first love, he says, first of all, remember. Remember this active, continual bringing to mind of something in the past, showing us that in, in this very situation, if we find ourselves with the same waning affection for our Savior, the thing to do is to remember. Remember back to those early days when we were astounded at the grace of God that he would stoop down and save a sinner like me. Remember how that would overcome you, uh, how that would overtake you and lead to the, to the tears of the Remember, like the prodigal son, remember your father and his household. Remember from where you have fallen. Look back and see what you used to do, how it used to impress you, how it used to impact you as you considered the gospel when it was still so fresh and vivid in your lives. Remember, go back to those days. He continues, secondly, repent. It requires repentance. It's sin. It's not just a little mistake that requires just a little change of trajectory, just a few degrees on the compass to the left or to the right. No, it's repent. It's a 180 mental shift is required. A decisive change of, of direction. A turn from that direction which you recognize is, is evil to the direction that you realize is right. Repent. It requires that kind of confession, that acknowledgement 
That change of mind. And third, return. Turn. Remember, repent, return. Notice what he says. Do the deeds you did at first. Now, he had just commended them for their deeds. He had just commended them for their deeds of of perseverance and toil. But remember, those kinds of deeds of perseverance and toil for the sake of the Great Commission, those kinds of things are no substitutes for love for Christ. You can never choose one or the other and say, well, I'm, I'm going to do ministry instead of love Christ. I'm going to be active in, in, in the church, and that's sufficient, and, and I don't need to, to do anything beyond that. I, I'm just going to be a doer. I'm going to do all these things, and so easy. That's the easy road. Christ calls this church back to, to do the deeds you did at first. I need love and affection directed toward the Lord himself. When you did ministry, not because it was just the right thing to do, but you did ministry because you love Christ. Because he's your Lord and Savior. He picked you up out of the pit. He forgave your sins. He gave you new life. He opened your eyes. He gave you hope. And so your whole life is is in that direction, devoted to him. You remember what that is. And Jesus says, go back to that kind of lifestyle. But if you don't, the evil men won't come and get you. Jesus says, I will. He, he says this at the second half of verse 6. He says, or else. Now, if you're a parent, you said that before. Do this or else. And you don't need any verb that follows. It's just implicit in the language. Do this or else. Although he does add at the end, unless you repent. That's the idea. You repent. If you don't, he says, I am coming. Now, the phraseology here, I am coming, is very common in, in the book of Revelation. We could read various texts, 1 verse 8, 16 verse 15, 22 verse 7, and 12 and 20. You can go and read them later. But this coming is probably a more local, limited judgment. Jesus says, I will come. And I will remove your lampstand. Indeed, Christ builds his church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against that building, but that does not preclude him from coming to extinguish a church due to its lack of love. Again, he will do this. The builder will come and demolish. And so he gives an appeal Beginning of verse 7, he says, He who let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Just a few comments on this very, very quickly. He who has an ear. This, this is an appeal, but this ear isn't just a physical ear. It refers to something greater, a spiritual ear, an ear of one who is able to receive and understand the truth. And so in terms of an unbeliever who doesn't have the ear, these words just roll off like water off a duck's back. He's appealing to those who have the ear to hear and saying they have an obligation. And this hearing is not just a a listening to the sounds of this letter being read, but it implies an obedience, an action that will come. And this, interestingly enough, this appeal comes not from Christ alone, but the Spirit. It's interesting you compare the verbs. In verse 1, it is 
Jesus who says this, the one who walks among the seven stars, the one who holds the, or, or walks among the seven golden lampstands and holds the seven stars, he says this, and by the end of the letter, it's the Spirit sending, saying this. The Spirit is the one also speaking this letter into the ear. And this is an admonition given not just to the Ephesian church. Notice the plural. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is not just a threat to the Ephesian congregation. This is a letter written to the Ephesians as an example for all churches. It would have been an immediate example to the rest of the churches along that postal route as they would hear this letter to the Ephesians read to them as well. But it is by extension a warning to us. And in addition to that appeal, there's a wonderful at the end of verse 7. A wonderful assurance to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, when we get into the next church letter, we'll look at this concept of the overcomer more. It's a very fascinating and important term. It has the term of conquering or victory, overcoming. All of that is part of it. Very, very important to the book of Revelation. I won't go through it now. I will just say this. The term is used by John to refer specifically to Christ. Christ is the overcomer, and you can see it in John 16, verse 33. Jesus says, I have overcome the world. We see it said of Christ in Revelation 5, verse 5. He, the root of David, has overcome. We could see it in Revelation 17, 14, that the Lamb will overcome his enemies. And because he's the overcomer, all who are truly united with him and found in him by extension are overcomers as well. We can see in John 4, verse 4, John says there, that you are from God, little children. Already, John 5, 4 to 5, what is, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Revelation 21, verses 6 to 7, and so on. We won't look at it in detail now, but here's the idea. Because Christ has overcome and will overcome all of his enemies, all who are united in him by nature of their union with Christ will overcome. Each one of us. Each one of us. And here's the wonderful reality of this, this, this appeal and this guarantee that as we hear these words, if you're in Christ, they have their impact and they will preserve you. And what will the result be? To him who overcomes, I'll grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. We read of that in Genesis chapter 2. God planted that tree. And then in Genesis chapter 3, as a result of mankind's sin, man was forbidden to partake of that tree. But the affirmation, the assurance that is given is this, that all who are in Christ, all these overcomers, there's coming a day when we will eat of that tree. That which was once forbidden and rendered inaccessible will one day be ours. And it will be given to us freely and without any impediment. And whatever was lost through Adam and his disobedience 
is now regained and even more through the victorious obedience of Jesus Christ, the one who loves us and who has released us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to his God forever. This is what is the reward. Returning in our fervency for Christ. As we close, let me give you three questions for self-examination. Think on these things as you go the rest of the day and perhaps the rest of this week. These are, these are penetrating questions. First of all, in the, in, in the way that the Ephesians were affirmed, can you answer this question? Do the admirable qualities of the church in Ephesus mark us, mark you, mark me? Ministry activity, intolerance for immorality, careful testing of teaching, rejection of error, persistence in hardship, and refusal to give up. Do those things mark me? Would Christ commend me in those very things? Those are commendable. Those are to mark us. It's not an either or. But secondly, Christ accuse us of the same fundamental flaw of a dying affection. Evaluate your life. Has that affection grown? Or over time, has it waned? You don't do the things you did at first. And in that case, remember, repent and return. Thirdly, are we motivated, am I motivated to fan the flame of my or our affection by the reward to eat of this tree of life? It is worth it. Let's pray. Father, these words are so convicting. We know in our best moments of affection for you, there is mixed within it questionable motives, imperfections, limitations. For all of us, we recognize a foot still in this world so many distracting things the glory, the beauty of your Son. So these words are penetrating. We pray that they would do their work in us to continue to wean from us those distractions. Pray for all of us as we start this new year, 2024, would be a Wonderful growth and affection for your son, Jesus. There is nothing more beautiful than him. May that be our greater realization this year. And even in the end, Father, we thank you that we can rest. That it is you who love us perfectly. And it's that perfect love which counts most in the end. We thank you for choosing us, for making us overcomers. And we give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.